0: Our scripture for today is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 38 through 45. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen.
1: Let's pray God. Lord, with uh, David, would you grant that there would be one thing that we would desire and seek after now, that we would dwell in the house of the Lord forever to behold your beauty and to meditate in your temple on your beauty and your goodness. You're the maker of every heart here, and your Son is the only redeemer. And we need to see that, and we need to feel. That and we need to respond to that. We need to steward our minds and our affections now in light of those truths. And we cannot do those things apart from the power of your Spirit, whether we're Christians or non Christians. And so we pray for the ministry of your Spirit now to come and to glorify the Lord Jesus, to take what belongs to him and to disclose it to us, and to also be the spirit of recreation and new life to cause uh, the dead to rise, even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, will you guys uh, break out in a cold sweat if I tell you that my watch broke this morning? <clears throat> because it did. There's a clock in the back, so but I can't see it. So uh, Honestly, my watch did break this morning, but that clock is big enough for me to see. Um, Listen, we have reached a very important point in Matthew's Gospel. I don't know if you recognize it or not, but we've gotten to the first uh, open and the first unmistakable prediction by Jesus of His death in Matthew's Gospel. Now, of course, we've been reading uh, Matthew's Gospel for a while now and thinking about it very deeply, and we've seen uh, that Jesus is weaving in in everything He is teaching, everything He is teaching, He is anticipating where his ministry is going to climax on Calvary. And so he's been talking about his death all along, okay? But now he does it much more openly, and it's in verse 40. And he does it in a a way that might seem a little strange, right? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, it shouldn't surprise us, really, that Jesus reveals this fact about His death in a context of conflict because we heard it from the very beginning of the service in the call to worship. The cross divides, right? The cross divides. Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, For the word of the cross is uh, to those who are perishing, folly. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, we think that the world is divided according to race, according to geography, uh, according to riches or resources or all those kind of things. But Paul says that the world is divided, but what really divides the world is the, the different views of the cross, and there are only two. Only two. Right? It is either ridiculous, or it is the power of God. There's no third way. And friends, let's have the courage of our convictions. Whether you're a Christian or non Christian, if the gospel is not the power of God, then let's just call it what it is. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. But if it's not stupid, if it's not folly, then that only leaves one option, that it's the power of God. And when Jesus is talking about His death here to the scribes and Pharisees, you notice how He basically casts His death in a way that is calculated to upset all kinds of expectations. A Savior who is willing to die on the cross is a Savior you cannot control. A Savior who is willing to die on the cross is a Savior upon whom you can impose no limits. A Savior who has come to die on a cross and be buried in the heart of the earth has not come to fit himself into the stories of our lives. He's only come for one purpose, and that is to make us fit for His story. And He resolves to not be at peace. Jesus Christ is not content to be a part of our stories. There's only one thing that is going to make Him content, and it is that when we are part of His story. And so this morning... There is a way that Jesus presents himself from this text that I just find absolutely stunning. The way that he describes himself, the way that he stands in a field of conflict to make his true identity known, it's absolutely breathtaking. And so what I want to do with you this morning is to think with you about three ways that Jesus depicts his own character and purposes from this text. What we learn about Jesus, uh, these three things. First, that Jesus is our danger. In fact, you could say He's our greatest danger. Uh, Secondly, we learn that He is our measure, the greatest measure. And third, we learn that Jesus is our greatest treasure. Uh, First, let's think about Jesus as our danger. I know that's not how you're used to thinking about Jesus, but let me explain what I mean and show you this from the text. What I mean by saying that Jesus is our greatest danger, is that you can see from this text that he's warning us that he is, at one and the same time, both very good and very unsafe. You've got to get both those things together. He is both very good and very dangerous at the same time. In fact, you could even say that his goodness is his danger. Now, let me give you an illustration of this. It's a lot like electricity. Electricity is very powerful, and it can run cities. It is also deadly, right? It kills people, and it saves people. The same electricity that runs the heart monitor or that powers the lights in the operating room uh, the, so, that the, so the surgeon can uh, do, the, do the heart transplant, that same electricity, if it is not respected for what it is, can kill somebody. And so you can't really understand the goodness of electricity unless you understand It's danger, and you must respect it. The same thing is true of Jesus in this passage. And I want to work backwards with you again. I just, I kind of enjoyed that last week. So let's start at verses 43 and 40 through 45, which I know you think is the weirdest part in the whole passage, right? This illustration that Jesus uh, tells or shares. Let's listen to it again. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person. It passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. See, he's still, this is, this is still in the context of the debate that he was having with the, the scribes and the Pharisees last week when he healed the demon-possessed man. And he, So he's using a, 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 an illustration from exorcism here to, to make his point about the, the sign of Jonah. But keep listening. Then it says, I will return to my house. So there's been an exorcism. Okay, and, the, and in the exorcism, the spirit, in the illustration, the spirit has been expelled uh, from the house, from the person's life, and it resolves to, it looks for some other place to be, and then in verse 44 it says, hey, I've got nowhere else to go, so I'm going to go back to where I came from. Verse 44, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And notice when he walks in the door, he finds that that the house is empty, swept, and put in order. Now, that's not what you would expect. You would expect the house to be inhabited. That's key. The house is empty. And then it goes and it says, hey, the house is empty. I'll get my buddies." Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first, so also will it be with this evil generation. See, the punchline, the interpretive key is in that verse 45. Uh, The last state of the person will be worse than the first, so it will be with this evil generation. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that the generation of Israel, his contemporaries who have seen his ministry as represented by the scribes and Pharisees who are here, they have had the benefit of his power, and they are not going to respond to his power. They're going to leave their lives empty of him. They're not going to let him inhabit their lives. And the result is their exposure to the truth about Jesus is going to leave them worse off than they were before they met him. Oh, that's so important for you to feel because we just assume that being exposed to the gospel always softens people. It does not. The only reason we think that is because we don't really pay attention to the things that Jesus tells us so plainly over and over and over again. right? Sometimes, and in some cases, as Jesus is pointing out here in this illustration, exposure to the gospel, exposure to the truth about Jesus doesn't end up softening somebody, it ends up hardening them, but nobody is ever unchanged. The same, you've heard this illustration, right? The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And that happens, friends, And Jesus is warning us here, don't assume that because you are around the gospel that you're better off uh, even if you don't embrace Jesus. In fact, Jesus would warn you here from this illustration that you should never take it for granted that you're safe because of that. Sometimes it is possible to be hardened against the gospel, to be inoculated against the gospel by the gospel, to grow so familiar to hearing it that it no longer shocks us, to be so near it in our experience around it so often, to have it so ready at hand that you do not feel an urgency about laying hold of it, because you think you always know where it is. Friends, that is deadly. So then let's go back. Verses 41 through 42. Notice when Jesus talks about the men of Nineveh and the uh, queen of the south, who's the queen of Sheba. Notice what Jesus says. Notice how serious he is. Let's listen to these two verses. The men of Nineveh will rise up. the The men of Nineveh, of course, are the... The the men who repented of uh, under Jonah's preaching, right? The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they, the men of Nineveh, repented at the preaching of Jonah. And you remember Jonah's message? You had forty days, and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. That's it. And they repented, from the greatest of them, the king, to the least of them. It was a revival. That God in His sovereignty caused to break out in Nineveh, all because this reluctant prophet who didn't want to go, who had to be brought there against His will, was preaching a message of judgment. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And Jonah did nothing kind for them. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here, meaning Himself. You've seen my miracles of compassion and healing. You've seen my faithfulness to the law of God. I'm greater than Jonah. And then he gives another illustration also of a Gentile. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment. That's the queen of Sheba. Will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. See, in the first example, the Lord sends Jonah to Nineveh, to the Gentiles. And they repented. And in the second example, a Gentile is drawn to the wisdom and the wealth and the blessing of God in Solomon. And she acknowledges the blessing of the Lord in Jonah's life. And, and both of them are, Jesus is saying, both of those are going to rise up as witnesses for the prosecution. See what Jesus is saying? He's saying this, friends. Number one, look at the, look at the realities in these illustrations to just underscore how serious this is. Number one, Jesus is saying there's going to be a general resurrection. Right? The, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, is going to rise up. See, Jesus is telling them at the end of history, all people are going to be raised. This is the general resurrection. And they're going to be raised in order to secondly be judged. You see how Jesus calls it? The judgment. The judgment twice in those two verses. See, this is where every life ultimately is leading. To be evaluated by God. And what's the standard? The standard under which every life is going to be evaluated is its response to Jesus Christ. You see, he's not safe. He's not safe. But it's his goodness that he has come in the first place, a goodness that is greater than Jonah's of goodness and wisdom that are greater than Solomon's. Because something greater than Solomon is here, because something greater than Jonah is here, not just for the scribes and the Pharisees, but friends, something far greater even than the scribes and the Pharisees knew because of Jesus' earthly ministry is here because of the side of the cross on which we stand, the side of the empty tomb on which we stand, the side of this 20 uninterrupted centuries of the growth of the gospel in the world that we stand in the midst of. Something greater than all that the scribes and Pharisees knew is here, and we are accountable for it. So let me ask you, is your house empty, friend? Is it swept and clean? Is the furniture tidied? Have you heard enough about Jesus to know that he is good, and maybe you've even come to him with a problem or a crisis in your life. Maybe you've, you've, you've figured out kind of, you know, that God exists and he's out there and you better get on his good side. Otherwise, the thing you really love is not going to go well. And so you treat him like he's a rabbit's foot. And so you come to him for some kind of service. Get me through this crisis. Get me through the cancer. Get me through the unemployment. Help my marriage to get better. Help my kids to stay on track. And then once whatever the problem is is sort of resolved, you kind of pull away and you say, well, I'm good enough with a clean house. And so your life is essentially defined by by an approach to Jesus that is close enough to recognize His goodness, but that falls short of bringing yourself all the way in. And your life is defined by a vacancy. Friends, don't let that continue for five seconds longer. Don't let your last state be worse than the first. That's not what God wants for you, and it is totally unnecessary. Jesus is our danger because he is our only safety. And if we walk away from him, there is no net. But secondly, we learn that Jesus is not only our danger, but he is our measure. He's our measure. And what do I mean by that? I mean that if we want to know the truth about God, if we want to know the truth about Jesus, if we want to know the truth about the world, and we want to know the truth about ourselves, we need to look to Him as the measure. That's what He's saying and declaring about Himself here. In this debate with, well, it's not really a debate, in His exchange with the scribes and the Pharisees about this sign that they want and then the sign that He gives them and what we find out in this exchange in verses 38 through 42 is that there's a there's a jealousy in Jesus that the true there's such a strong jealousy in Jesus that the truth about who he is will be known, that the truth about who his father is will be known, that the truth about the world's true condition will be known, that the truth about men will be known, that Jesus is so radically jealous that the full truth about these things will be known that that jealousy, that that jealous love for the truth of all those things is gonna lead him. He's gonna thrust himself by the power of that jealousy by his design it's not going to be accidental, and by his desire, this is what he wants he 's going to thrust himself in the middle of this conflict, this collision between the logic of men and the logic of God, and the heart of that conflict is going to be deadly for him but it 's all by design. You see what he is what he is pointing us to in his his uh, explanation of the sign of Jonah is that men don't see the world the way God sees the world. Boy, that's so important to not assume that God looks at the world the same way we look at the world or that God looks at us the same way we look at ourselves. Friends, is that even a category for you? That God doesn't agree with your evaluation of the world? Oh, that needs to be. I mean, you might say that you believe in God and you like him and you have this, when you go out under the stars, you have this sense, oh, I know there's a God. I know there's a God. I've seen the sky or I've been on the ocean. I know there's a God. And that's wonderful. That's true. Your experience of, of nature uh, does, does potentially contain true things about God. But, friends, let me ask you this. Do you have a category for the, the in, those, in the midst of those warm and fuzzies for that God whose presence you feel ever contradicting you, ever speaking into your life in a way that contradicts your preferences. You see, if you don't, then that means that you are assuming that the only God you're willing to believe in is a God who agrees with you. Jesus wants you to agree with God. So look at what happens here. The scribes and the Pharisees come to him, and it's understandable why they come to him. Because he has just just done some amazing things in chapter 12, and he has said some amazing things, right? He He has had the audacity to say, like we saw last week in verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Well, that sounds like something that only God could say. And so they come to him, and they say, teacher, in verse 38, they say, teacher. And when Jesus is addressed as teacher in the Gospels, <laughs> it's, it's polite. It has the form of politeness, but the substance of, hey, we don't really believe this about you. And they say, we wish to see a sign from you. In other words, did you hear it in 1 Corinthians 1 in our call to worship that Jews ask for signs, and, or Jews demand signs, but Greeks ask for wisdom? right? I mean, you know, there, there are certain cultural preferences that we're wired with, that we look to God for, and, and in the first century, right, uh, Paul was saying, hey, yeah, the, the main stumbling block for a Jew with respect to the gospel, because so many other parts of the worldview between Christianity and Judaism were basically the same, monotheistic, you know, objective good, objective evil, all those things. So, so you know, the, the main Jewish objection to Jesus was, well, show us power, Right, show us power. If the Messiah, if you say Jesus is the Messiah, then show us power. But for the Greeks, right, because they didn't share the same worldview, the main stumbling block was wisdom. Prove it to us. It doesn't make sense. Uh, uh, Satisfy our intellect enough so we'll believe in Christ. And here they're asking for signs. And what, because these are Jews, right? Scribes and Pharisees. And what they're essentially asking is, do a miracle. Show us power. Power. Make it unmistakable. Take away any reason that we have to unbelieve. Now, there are three problems with that. I mean, we understand that they would ask the question in many ways, isn't that how we deal with God? When I was a non-Christian, there were a couple of things in the months leading up to my conversion, there were a couple of things where I said, hey, I cannot even believe that God didn't strike me dead is so merciful. If you heard the way not just that I talked about God but talked to Him, that you would hide under your chair. The only reason I didn't have to is because Jesus didn't hide from the wrath of my slander of God deserved. He went out in the open for me and for you. But there were a couple of things where I said okay, if you're out there (laughs) prove it. Now, we do this. And the three problems with the, what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing is, first of all, they're ignoring the signs that Jesus has already done. Hello. Right? I, had, I had lunch with a non Christian friend a few weeks ago, and this non Christian friend uh, said all kinds of bad things about God. And it was a very long list, and it took about 20 minutes. And uh, I was praying the whole time, what in the world am I supposed to say, Father? And then it just came out of my lips. And I thought, as I was saying it, I need to write this down. (laughs) You ever have those moments? You've made a very good speech against God. You have a very strong argument. I just have one question. What do you do with all the blessings you've experienced? How do those factor into your view about God, especially given your attitude toward Him? Silence. We're very selective in the way we view the evidence. We also have bad motives, just like the Pharisees. We don't really want the answer. We're just putting up a smoke screen, right? And Jesus sees it a mile away, and that's why He says, listen, I'm not going to give you a sign except the sign of Jonah. This evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. In other words, what you really want, you don't really want proof of my identity. You want to be able to stay with your spiritual lover. You want to remain an adulterer. You're not interested in binding yourself to me in spiritual monogamy. Your motives are wrong, even in the asking, although it sounds polite. That's the second problem. And so we need to check our own hearts. And the third thing, of course, is that they utterly reverse reality because they put Jesus in the dock. They act as if, God, as if the burden of proof rests on Jesus. Oh boy, we do that, don't we? Friends, if your view of reality is that you can withhold your heart from God until God proves himself to you, you have turned the world upside down. God literally has nothing to prove to you. Your own conscience testifies to you that you are His creature, that you owe Him everything, that He is holy, and you run from it because you don't have an answer for the gap in your life between how you live and what you know to be true about what's required of you. It's why the television stays on. It's why your earbuds stay in. It's why you drink. It's why some people go to drugs. It's why people overeat because they are trying. It's why they overwork. It is they are trying to fill their lives so they don't have to face the reality of this chasm. And it is so unnecessary because Jesus is standing right there in the midst, saying, "I am the chasm filler." This same friend that I had lunch with, when we got to the end of lunch, I said, okay, okay, you've had a very compelling argument against God, and so now I want you to imagine we're in a courtroom, and you've made the opening statement, and uh, you've finished your argument, and we just finished. Now God rises to address the jury. I said, what is God's best argument against you? Silence. People don't think about the most important questions. And they put God in a little box. Friend, does God have the right to prove Jesus' identity? Does He have the right and the freedom in your mental box to prove Jesus' identity to you and to call you to exclusive and total loyalty to Him through a sign that isn't the sign that you want or even the sign that you asked for, or the sign that you think you need, but the one that God knows you need? Does God have the right to do that? Does He have the right to contradict your preferences? That is the sign of Jesus's Messiahship. And for all eternity, the entire universe is going to be in orbit around the wounds of the Lamb. Friends, this is reality. We are at ultimate reality. We do not need a super collider in France to get down to ultimate reality. We have it on Calvary. God is not in the dock. We are. He is the measure. Jesus is our measure. He's the standard. And you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, Listen, I'm not going to give you any other sign except the sign of the prophet of Jonah. And it's such a strange sign. He's not playing to their pride. Right? Look at what he says. For just as Jonah, only, there's only going to be one sign. I'm going to give you, it's going to be the sign of the prophet Jonah, verse 39, verse 40. What is that sign? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Oh my goodness, do you see that? He's saying, here's the sign. You want a sign that I'm the Messiah? I'm going to die. I'm going to be under the power of death. I'm going to put myself... Under the power of death. Of course, this is blowing their categories, right? Because we want power. So how can we have a Messiah who's under the power of death? And not only that, but he says something that they probably ignore. He says, I'm only going to be there for three days. So notice this amazing combination. A Messiah who dies, who puts himself under the power of death, who submits to the power of death, and then from within death, triumphs over death and resurrection because he's only going to be there three days. He says it. I mean, listen, when I die, I don't have any predictions on how long it's going to be before I rise again. I don't have that kind of power. You see how both things are there? He's saying, I'm going to be humble enough to go under the power of death. This is the sign of my Messiahship. I'm going to be humble enough to go under the power of death, and I'm going to be mighty enough to break myself out of death. See, unlike Jonah, who didn't really die, he just went in a fishy submarine to the bottom of the ocean. But there was still oxygen, and his heart was still beating. Jesus Christ was buried in the heart of the earth. He was dead clinically dead, anatomically dead, not figuratively dead, not metaphorically dead, but dead. And the power of that same Messiah that enabled him in humility to go under death enables him to come out of it. Now, that's, that's either brilliant or the most ridiculous thing you ever heard in your life. And not only that, but he says it's the Son of Man who that's going to happen to. And if you read your Old Testament, we don't have time to go there now, but if you read your Old Testament, there's only, if you're going to prioritize the greatness, if you're going to do a scale of all the characters from the Old Testament, from greatest to the least, well, of course, number one would be the Lord. The Lord. You didn't even have to think about that. Isn't that great? Number one would be the Lord. But the second most exalted character in the Old Testament that you read is the Son of Man. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man approaches the throne of the Ancient of Days, who's the Father, He approaches, you can read it this afternoon, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. The Son of Man, Daniel sees a vision in exile of the Son of Man who approaches the throne of the Ancient of Days on the clouds, the Ancient of Days who is God, the ruler over all. And this figure, the Son of Man, comes to him and receives from the Ancient of Days a kingdom and dominion so that all the peoples and nations will serve him and worship him. And Jesus is saying that that exalted one... See, you feel the power of that? How shocking this is? That that Son of Man is going to be buried in the heart of the earth. What kind of a sign is this? You see, what Jesus is saying, friends, is that the reason this is so shocking is because men have turned the world upside down. And the only way that God can make it right is by himself being subjected to that upside-downness. He comes down. The whole story of Jesus' ministry is of God coming down, not just in order of being, right? The distance between the eternal God and a human being is infinite. We are not just... Uh, uh, rungs of the ladder away from God. Friends, he is eternal. He is everlasting. He is spirit, right? And the distance between him and us, we don't have computers that can calculate it. We don't have brains that can calculate it. We just need to know that it is no small thing for the angel of the Lord to say to Joseph in Matthew 1, "The, the, the child conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. He comes down not just in order of being, but in experience. And he comes down under his own law and he comes down under the authority of sinners. He comes down over and over and over again in suffering, in temptation, in obedience to the law. And then he comes down beneath the judgment of the sinners who are under his judgment. And then he even comes down under the death, the power of death that was his judgment against the sin of man. He puts himself down. it, That is the story that Jesus is shocking the scribes and the Pharisees with, and let's just be honest, that shocks us as well. This is the sign that Jesus gives us, that the world is upside down, and He is willing to enter it in order to remedy it. See, what He's talking about here, friends, is He's taking us to the very heart of what Christianity is about, which is the logic of the cross. This is the logic of God. See, the logic of men says, show us power, Validate your identity. Uh, g- strength. If you're telling me you're a king, you must be strong, right? You must, be, you must flatter us. You must take care of our enemies, right? Get rid of those Romans and those pagans. If you're the Messiah we want, what kind of savior do you want? Do You want a savior who's willing to tell you the truth about your sin? To tell you the truth that it's not just foibles and flaws, it's not just imperfection, it's not your parents' fault. It's not your family of origins' fault, it's not your coworkers' faults. It's not your children's faults, it's not your spouse's fault. Do you want a savior? Friends, do you really want a savior? Because this is the only savior there is who's going to tell you that the biggest problem in your life is of your own making and you're accountable to God for it. And it's not just some imperfection in your character, it is a crime upon crime upon crime against the majesty and the goodness of God. Is that the Savior you want? That's the only Savior there is. He's going to talk to you about that chasm. He's going to talk to you about the chasm between how you're living and what you were made to live for. And if you, the only way, the only way you can possibly hold on in that discussion and face it with open eyes is to know him as the one who has come to be the chasm filler. It's the only way. You cannot face the reality of the glory of God or the reality of how far you have fallen from it as his image bearer unless you have a God who is willing to come down and to fill that chasm on your behalf, to fill it with a life of perfect obedience to the destiny and the design of God for human life, which you and I have not fulfilled, to fill it with a willingness to be under the consequences to absorb and exhaust all the judicial consequences of our failure to live that life. Unless you look that chasm filler in the eye, Jesus Christ, and you see that this is where he was willing to go for you, you cannot face the truth about yourself and the truth about God. But hallelujah, the gospel enables us to say that this is all good news because it is a whole story Men have turned the world upside down. That's what the cross says. You and I have turned our lives upside down. That's what sin is, you know. Sin is an assault upon the glory of God. Sin turns the world upside down. It says man doesn't need God. Man is wiser than God. Man isn't dependent upon God. Holiness doesn't matter. Sin is fun. Sin is freeing. Holiness is constraining. Insanity. Talk to an addict, by the way. If you don't know somebody who is an addict, you need to talk to an addict because you're an addict. Right? We're, we're addicts for all kinds of things besides the glory of God. And an addict doesn't feel like their sin is liberating Quite the contrary. We just need to realize that we're all addicts. We look down on people who are open addicts, but we're all addicts. You see, the logic of the cross is so stunning because what God does is He comes into our lives and He says, Listen, there's a disease in your heart as a human being, and there's a remedy from God's heart for that disease. What's the, what's, the, what's the disease? Well, the way we figure out what the disease is, is we work... You ever heard of reverse engineering? You, you, you find... It's what the Chinese do all the time with fighter planes, by the way, and submarines. They buy it, and then they reverse engineer it, they take it apart, and they figure out how to make it. So let's go to the cross. The cross is the cure. Well, let's work backwards from the cross to find out what the, what the disease is. Well, if the Holy One Himself has to literally be judged, has to literally be made sin, if the creator has to become a creature. This is all part of the story of the cure, right? If, if the judge of all has to be under the judgment of men, then what we learn is that sin has turned the world upside down, Sin is an assault upon the glory of God. Sin tries to take men and place them where God should be. And what God does in Jesus Christ is he sends his son into the world to hunt down the pride of men because the DNA of all sin is the pride of men. That's the disease. The pride of men that says, I don't need God. He should do what I want. He's in the dock. The hardship in my life is His fault. The reason the, world is me- the reason the world is so messed up is because of God. Friends, the reason the world is the way it is right now is the pride of men. And God sends His Son into the world. I mean, think about this. <laughs> I don't know how you can be cynical about God when, when His answer for the pride of men is the humility of his son. He sends his son into the world to hunt down the pride of men, not with a sword, but with a weapon he turns on himself. That weapon is the cross. And on the cross, right, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, it's the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is upside down. Someone greater than Jonah who's going to be less than Jonah The cross is upside down. God comes and He assaults the pride of men with His Son's humility on the cross. Uh, Turn with me just very quickly to 1 Corinthians 1. I want to show this to you because it is so amazing. I mean, it is so critical to see. You remember a few weeks ago we talked about how seeing the heart of God is, is ultimately... What, what sustains us, what draws our hearts out after God is to see God's heart. Whether that, whether that, whether that is as a non-Christian, the, the greatest power to bring your soul under the yoke of Christ is to see the heart of God. And the greatest power to sustain a Christian's pursuit of growth is to see the heart of God. And, and I believe that 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 is the second most important paragraph in the Bible. And you should know it backwards and forwards. The first most important paragraph in the Bible is Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. But this is number two. And look at, look at how Paul explains the world to us. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. I'm on page 952 in the blue pew Bibles. For it is written, and this is God speaking, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Right? The the world's problem is pride. Uh, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? See, it looks upside down. The cross looks upside down and God is using the cross to make the world's wisdom foolish. Look at this. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. What Paul is saying is, listen, the most important question the world ever got was how do we know God? And every single human being got an F on that test. The world's wisdom, the world's pride would never lead the world to know God. So what does God do? See, this is where we find out what his heart is really like. This is why you should love God. This is why there should be nothing in your life that you should hold back from him, my Christian brother and sister. This is why, if you are a non-Christian, the wisest... Most sensible thing for you to do right now is with all the might that you can muster to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus Christ. Because notice the connection within verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, since the world came to a dead end, what does God do? It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Do you hear that? We don't know God. How does God respond? With joy in saving us. God takes pleasure in saving people who have not known him, who have been prideful in his face. And God delights particularly in doing it through the foolishness or what looks like the foolishness of the cross. Because in order to be saved by that cross, in order to receive God's saving power in Christ, you have to let go of your pride. You have to acknowledge that you have been wrong on the most important question in your life, the worth of God. And it makes God very happy to make every provision for you as a rebel to know him. But you come into him and into his favor through a message that on its face sounds crazy. That remedy for our disease comes from the heart of God. And it is the wisest wisdom there is. And the one who came to accomplish that for us is Jesus Christ. And you want an application of this? Well, let me just ask you this before we get to our third point, which will go very quickly. Application of this is this. We all have areas in our lives that make too much sense in light of the world's logic. And so I ask you to think about your money. I ask you to think about your time. I ask you to think about what you're teaching your children. I ask you to think about how you view your marriage, how you regard your retirement, how you think about the church, how you think about Jesus, all in light of whether those areas of your life make too much sense in light of the world's view. Does, does, do those areas of your life, and perhaps how you approach your work, all those things, do those areas of your life uh, agree that the world is right side up with the world? <laughs> or does it look like the world is upside down based on those areas in your life? Think about that. Well, the one who came to do that, friends, he's our greatest treasure. That's our third point, right? He is, uh, he is, when Jesus says, not just if you go back to our text in Matthew 12, he says, something greater than Jonah is here and someone greater, some, something greater than, Jonah, uh, than Solomon is here. But what he really means is someone greater than Jonah and someone greater than Solomon. And I end with this vision of Jesus because ultimately, friends, we can get the logic of the cross and we can understand that the world's upside down, but where we have to end is at the feet of a Savior and in the service of a Savior who is unmatched in His goodness and in His power in his greatness, in his loveliness, in his beauty. He's so much greater than Jonah. Jonah was a reluctant prophet, right? Jonah, Jonah went to Nineveh against his will. He didn't love the Ninevites. His only, his only message was a message of judgment. And in the end, the last thing he wanted was for the Ninevites to be saved. And when they were saved, he got angry at God. Do you remember that? He said, kill me. They believed. Jesus said, Kill me so they can believe. The Lord appointed a plant the sheltered jonah the plant grew and then the lord appointed a worm to kill the plant and jonah got angry again and said kill me you know jesus had a plant he had a tree That God had given him. And it was not a place of shelter for him. It was a place where he was exposed to God's judgment so that others might go free. It was the tree of the cross. And he was utterly exposed. And he did not indulge in unrighteous anger against God or those for whom he died as he hung there all alone, hung between heaven and earth for our sake and for the glory of his Father. No, what does the writer of the Hebrews say? The reason was that he stayed on that cross. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. Friends, Jesus is greater than Jonah. A God, a Savior, who is willing to go to the cross for you is a Savior whose love is beyond all question and beyond all measure. It is the greatest of all treasures that God is setting before us. He is greater than Jonah, but he's also greater than Solomon. Solomon was a wise man who didn't live his wisdom. We know that. That's a great tragedy of Solomon. A God who is willing to go to the cross for you is a God You can't control a God whose love is beyond all question and all measure and a God whose wisdom you must trust no matter what. And the reason you can and must trust his wisdom is because of what he has done for you in his love. He bought that wisdom for you with his own blood. It is written in his own sacrifice. So when he tells you that you will find your life by losing it, believe him. When he tells you that he loves a cheerful giver, believe him, because he is the most cheerful of givers. When he tells you to come to him, with your weariness and your heavy ladenness and to give your whole life to him so that you will find rest in him, that when he tells you to come to him and take his yoke upon you and learn from him, when he tells you that he is gentle and lowly in heart and promises that you will, if you come to him, find rest for your souls, believe him. Believe him because he is, as Paul says, wisdom from God for us, right? This is the world right side up. This is the only wisdom that, that, that is right side up in the world. It's the only wisdom with the power to take a life and turn it right side up. The only wisdom to take the entire cosmos and turn the world upside up, right side up. Friends, he is greater than Jonah, he is greater than Solomon, and he is here. He is here. So receive Him. He is ready to receive you. Receive Him this morning and all that He has to offer you. Let's pray. Lord, we, we want so much for Jesus' jealousy, for Your glory, and for our eternal joy to be the things that grip us. And, and this morning we pray that the seed of Your Word will have found good soil and will bear much fruit. We pray in Jesus' name.